Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Proverbs chapter 21. We say here at GCA, we are convinced by the biblical text that God is sovereign. I think as we've been going through the book of Proverbs, we have seen ample evidence that Solomon also believed that God was sovereign. Here again, we're going to see that said. Now, I just said that all the way through the Bible, we see evidence of God's sovereignty. Sometimes that evidence is the big things, things like kingdoms rising and other kingdoms falling and God commanding the nations to rise and to fall and who has authority and who does not. And and so we can look at that. We can see God's control over human history as he demonstrates even in prophecy. And we can say, well, then see, God is sovereign. It's obvious. It's demonstrated right there. But Solomon in chapter 21, verse 1, brings it from the macro down to the micro, down to himself. He is the king of Israel at this point. And yet he recognizes that the decisions that he makes, the things that he is convinced of, the way that he rules in Israel is all up to God ultimately. Not only God giving him the law that he is supposed to judge by and he is supposed to rule by, but even the decisions of his heart, he's going to say, are in the hands of God. Here's what he says. He says, the king's heart... The NASB adds, is like, so he's creating a uh, comparison here between his own heart and the rivers of water. The NASB says the channels of water. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. You might ask, in what way is your heart like a river of water, Solomon? Well, God turns it wherever he wishes. Now, if you take a look at a river geographically, nobody ever sat down and designed the course of a river. No one ever sat down and said, well, the Mississippi ought to go here. Instead, the rivers of water do what they do. And over the course of time, we can see that they've changed course. They've gradually eroded away the banks that at one time used to constrain them. Solomon sees that. He sees that it's not up to any human being to design the course of a river. And he says, the heart of the king, my own heart, is just like that. The flow of my heart, the decisions of my heart, the way that I am ruling, the way that I am controlling, has to be in the hands of God. Because he has already said several times that men decide their own way, but that ultimately God's way wins out. And in fact, that's what he's going to say in verse 2. So when we say God is sovereign, we are saying that God is in charge, yes, of the big stuff. He's in charge of nations. He's in charge of rulers. He's in charge of lifting up one man and taking down another. If the book of Daniel teaches us anything, it teaches us that, that God is in charge of the nation's that are ever going to hold sway or 
that are ever going to control the Middle East, particularly those nations that are going to have some influence over Jerusalem and God's chosen people. God is in charge of who rules those nations. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who opened doors and gates to Nebuchadnezzar. But then he took down Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that raised up the Medo-Persians. He's the one who decided that Cyrus was going to rule over Darius. I mean, it's all up to God. And so up to God that Daniel prophesies it in advance so that we can see that it's really up to God. Why was there an Alexander the Great ever? Well, because God decided so. Why was there ever a king? Why was there ever a ruler? Why was there ever anybody who ever had influence over the nations or over the world? Well, because God decided that. And then Solomon brings that sovereignty, that notion of God's absolute control over the events of humankind on planet Earth. He brings it all the way down to himself and says, well, then I as king am also in his hands. So then the decisions I make, the judgments I make, the way that I rule is already determined by God, not only because he has laid out his law, he's already laid out his commandments, he's already laid out his ordinances, and it is my job to follow those ordinances within Israel, but even the decisions I make when I read that law, even the way that I judge his people, That's all in the hands of God. So let's extrapolate on that for just a moment and say, well, then if that is true of Solomon, if it's true of kingdoms, if it's true of the world, is it true of you? Well, obviously it has to be. And that's a hard one sometimes for us to grasp because we egocentric people just have the notion that we do what we want to do. We make the decisions, as Solomon is about to say. People construct their own way in life, and they think by their own free will, by their own self-determination, that they're going to decide what they are going to do. But Solomon says it's all up to God, because ultimately, even when men determine what their own way is going to be, it's ultimately God who weighs their hearts, weighs their decisions, and ultimately it's the determination of God that comes to fruition. And that idea is carried all the way into the New Testament. Even James says you're not supposed to say, I'm going to do thus and so. I'm going to go to a certain city, and I'm going to work, and I'm going to get wealth, and I'm going to do He says, no, you have to say, if the Lord wills and I live, then I'm going to do thus and so. So the two prerequisites for you actually accomplishing your will is, number one, God has to agree with it. And number two, you have to take another breath. You have to still be alive tomorrow to accomplish what you want to do. And even that is up to God. God has determined the length of a man's life, where a man's going to be born, what nationality a man's going to be, who his parents are going to be how wise he's going to be. All of these determinations are already up to God. He has already known you and already determined these things in the womb. And so even the ability to take another breath, live another day, continue with your life, continue with your plans, is still all a matter of God's sovereignty. So Solomon says, chapter 21, verse 1, that was, in fact, all introduction. The king's heart 
is like the rivers of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Doesn't matter what a man intends to do. It doesn't even matter what a man determines in his heart. It doesn't even matter if that man happens to be king and has very few restrictions on his determinations and decisions. In the end, his heart is all up to God, and God turns that heart wherever he wishes, which means, by the way, God can soften your heart, or God can leave you with your stony heart, because God's in charge of your heart. God can bring you along in the understanding of him, or he can leave you in your own darkness, because it's all up to him. That's why Paul, in the book of Romans, in Romans 9, would say, who resists God's will? And if no one resists the will of God, how can he then find fault with people? How can he find fault if no one resists his will? And Paul's answer is, who are you to answer against God? You don't get to answer against God. He gets to do whatever he wants because he is, as I said at the beginning of the evening, he is sovereign. And because he's sovereign, he makes the determinations. And because he makes the determination, he can do whatever he wants with you, with your life, with your heart. And if he has given you a heart of understanding and intelligence, if he has taken out your stony heart and given you a heart of flesh, if he has inhabited you and given you comprehension, understanding of what his decision and determination is for you, that's all just his grace, 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 which means, again, by the very fact that it's by grace, means that it's not up to you. Because if it was up to you, if it was up to your determination, your decision, your work, your effort, then it's not grace. That's Paul's argument. That would be debt. Paul claims that God would then be paying you back a debt. But if it's grace, then it's not because of anything you did. He's just been remarkably kind to you in helping you to understand what he has planned for you. The king's heart is like the rivers of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Verse 2 then very similarly says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now if that sounds familiar, if you go back just a previous chapter or two, Go back to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16.2, Solomon has said, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. When we looked at that previously, I said, That's because human beings have this remarkable ability to justify themselves. Human beings, no matter what they're doing, even if they know what they're doing is contrary to what God has laid out as what righteousness looks like, even as they are participating in their own unrighteousness and their own rebellion, they have the ability to justify themselves, usually by saying, well, it's not as bad as. Okay, well, I'm, I'm being bad now, but look, I'm not Hitler. Or I'm being bad now, but I'm not being as bad as I could be. And so by making those kind of comparisons, we have this ability to justify our activity and then presume on God that he's just going to forgive us for that activity because, after all, we're under grace. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. But contrary-wise, Solomon says, but the Lord, but Yahweh, 
weighs the motives. In other words, it's not just your action, it's why are you doing the action? Are you doing the action out of self-sufficiency? Are you doing it out of rebellion? Are you doing it out of presumption? Are you doing it just to prove that you can probably get away with it because God is going to forgive you? The ways of a man are clean in his own sight. The Lord weighs the motives. Look at verse 1 of that same chapter. The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Ultimately, Solomon, every time he says, look, a man says what he wants to say. A man thinks what he wants to think. A man determines what he wants to determine, and he thinks all his ways are up to himself, and whatever his ways are, he has this ability to justify himself, but the answer, by contrast, is always, yes, but the Lord. Yes, but the Lord. Yes, but the Lord. He weighs weighs your motives. The answer of your tongue is also from him. And back in chapter 21, the Lord weighs the heart. It's the same idea as the Lord weighs your motives. The Lord weighs your heart to determine what your heart is about. Why are you doing what you're doing? The Bible says God passed over the days of ignorance, the days of ignorant sin, people who rebelled against God because they just didn't know any better. So what does that mean? That means that God didn't look at the action. He looked at the intention of the heart. He weighed the heart. He weighed the motive. And he can tell whether the actions, even if they are actions that he himself has said are abominable, if you are engaging in that action ignorantly, then God knows that it's ignorance. God passes over those kinds of sins. But you could do the exact same thing. Let's pick an activity. Let's say that you, um, I'm going to try to think of something not too horrible, something kind of innocuous, but something, let's say that you're used to yelling at your mom and dad. You're, okay. And, and the Bible says to honor your father and your mother, but you're oftentimes ugly to them. Okay, but let's say that you, don't you look back at your daughter just let that be. <laughs> he gave her one of these. <laughs> okay, but let's say that you, as you were doing it, you didn't know that God's commandment was to honor your father and mother. Okay, well, God, according to that understanding, God can pass over that knowing that you're just doing it in ignorance. But then once you come to the realization that the Bible says, honor your father and mother, and then you go ahead and are ugly to them anyway? Okay, it's the same activity. The difference is the intention of your heart. Now you know it's wrong, and you're doing it anyway. Think about Paul saying, I wouldn't have known that I was coveting until the law said, don't covet. Then I realized I was full of all kinds of coveting. Okay, well, that's that same idea. What's the intention of your heart? Paul was coveting, but he didn't know, at least by his example there, he didn't know that that coveting that he was doing was wrong, nor would anybody know that the coveting they were doing was against God's word. 
And then they see it in God's word. Now they're aware that they are coveting. And now they are responsible for their covetous hearts because now they're knowledgeable of it. So my point is, it's not the activity. It's the intention of your heart. That's why Solomon can say, Every man's way is right in his own eyes. He can justify his own ways. He can do the things that he determines for himself. But in the end, the judgment's going to come down to the Lord weighing the heart. Why did you do those things? What was the intention behind those things? Were you doing it with a rebellious attitude? Were you doing it with a rebellious heart? Or were you doing it out of just ignorance. Go forward in the same chapter to verse 30. In verse 30, since there will be people who, having heard, that is the Lord who weighs the hearts regardless of what you do and how you justify yourself, people are going to attempt to justify themselves then to God. People are going to say, well, here's my plea, God. Here's, here's why I did what I did. Here's my excuse Here's my note from home. Here's why I did what I did. But verse 30 says, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. This also kind of answers Paul's question. The question that he posed, who has ever resisted the will of the Lord? So how can he then find fault with them? That kind of argumentation from human beings is a way of saying, well, it's not fair. God can't do that. God can't judge people who only do what God determined they were going to do. That's why Paul's answer is, who are you, O man, to answer against God? The thing that is formed doesn't get to say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Solomon says, there's no wisdom, there's no cleverness in a man's mind, there's no understanding, no comprehension, no intelligence, And no counsel. In other words, you're not going to go to God and explain to him how you see it as opposed to how he sees it in order to correct his way of seeing it. There is no counsel against the Lord. You're without excuse. There's no amount of wisdom, no cleverness, no words. There's no comprehension. There's no understanding. And there's no explaining things, no counseling God It's ever going to be against the Lord. What he determines is the way it's going to work out. So yet again, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. And when he weighs your heart, when he weighs your intention, when he determines the outcome, that's it. That's the determination. Now, I think when you piece all those pieces together in Solomon's way of thinking, he's advocating for do it God's way. Because you don't have any excuse to come to God with. I mean, thank God through Christ that there is grace and there is kindness and there is long-suffering. Thank God that that all exists. But if you actually love God and you are knowledgeable of God's sovereignty and his willingness and capability to judge everything and that he's judging your heart, I think you would want your ways to comport with him rather than comporting with your own justification of yourself. One more verse. Go to Luke in the New Testament. Go to Luke 16, 15. 
I know I'm kind of driving this point tonight, but this is the way the chapter starts. It starts with God is sovereign. He's in charge of your heart. And even if you justify yourself, God's going to weigh out your heart. Chapter 16, look at verse 14. We'll start there. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things, listening to Jesus talk, and they were scoffing at him. He knew that they were scoffing. After all, he weighs the hearts. And he said, you are those who justify yourselves. Okay, that's just exactly what Solomon was just talking about. Every man's ways are right in his own eyes. He'll justify himself. You're those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. Try to make yourself look good in front of men, but God knows your heart. Same idea, Old Testament, New Testament. It is God who weighs the heart. It is God who weighs out your intentions. But God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men, while other men may be convinced of your rightness, while you may be able to convince other people of your excuses and your justifications, that means nothing to God. Because those things that are highly esteemed among men Those things are detestable in the sight of God. Why? Because as I've said over and over and over again, and now we'll say again, you're not like God and God is not like you. The things that you think are impressive, the ways that you justify yourself, the way that you can convince other human beings to agree with you, In your justification of yourself, that means nothing to God because God weighs your intention, God weighs your heart, and the things that men highly esteem, God finds detestable. We could extrapolate that out into the things that go on in our society right now, whether we're talking about the murder of the unborn or whether we're talking about the profanation of marriage. Why do those things exist in our country? Well, it's because somebody somewhere stood up and justified them and said, well, but it's a woman's body, and so it's up to her. Or, well, what about the case of rape? Or what about the the woman's health? Isn't that more important than the baby's health? Okay, those are all justifications, and they may sound like reasonable justifications. And at some point, somebody stood up and made a justification that other human beings went, well, yeah, that makes sense. We all agree with that justification. So we as a group are all going to agree with those justifications. We're even going to vote on them. We're going to make them laws. That's the way we're going to conduct our business because that's what we think. But those things that are acceptable to men collectively like that, that are highly esteemed by men, are detestable to God because God has already spoken to the sanctity of life based on the fact that human beings are made in the creation of God, in the image of of God, and therefore that gives them intrinsic value. And that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Okay, that makes him human from his mother's womb. And so it's not just getting a piece of non viable tissue out of a mother, you're actually taking a child away from the mother. That's the biblical view. The biblical view has already been laid out, has already been explained, and then even though human beings get together and say this is what we highly esteem based on our own logic and justification, it's still detestable to God. And I didn't say that. Jesus did. Amen. 
Look, even if all the human beings get together and say, you know, marriage doesn't have to be between one man and one woman. Sure, it's always been that way. Sure, the Bible defines it that way. But a front runner to be president right now gets on the stump with his husband. That's right, his husband. Those two words don't go together. And he's very demonstrative with his physical affection for his husband. And in some crazy way, he's a front runner right now to be president of the United States. How many people have to have found his justification acceptable for him to be at that vaulted position? And yet you read the Bible and you see that even though it's highly esteemed among men, it's detestable to God. God has already said it's an abomination. God has already laid out what he thinks about it. He finds it detestable. He's going to examine their hearts. He's going to examine the hearts of the people who believe it and are justifying it and who find it you know, so acceptable and so highly esteemed. All I'm saying is, be careful. Because God has already told you what's righteous, what's good, what's holy, what's justifiable. Human beings have a remarkable ability to justify themselves and then make that justification in front of other people so that those things become highly esteemed. (laughs) Nevertheless, it's the Lord who weighs the hearts. And Jesus said it, and Solomon said it, and Jesus added that those things that are highly esteemed by men are detestable to God. So you've really got to be careful what your motivation is, because I'm going to go so far as to say that a whole lot of people who find these things attractive, who justify these things, who vote for these things, are doing it in full knowledge that the Bible says no. I'm glad you nodded at that. And they're doing it out of their own self-will and rebellion. God knows that. You're just setting yourself up for appropriate judgment from God. Have I read anything into that? It's what it says. It's what it says. You just got to deal with it. So then the opposite of your rebellion, the opposite of doing things your own way, And then God weighing, judging out your heart. The opposite of that is in verse 3. To do righteousness. (coughs) To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. Okay, now this phrase is used a few different times. This idea of righteousness and justice rather than sacrifice, it shows up several times in the Bible. And I think... What it means essentially is it's not a question of the animal itself. It's not a question of the sheep or the oxen or the value of the animal. It's not about the practice of sacrifice. After all, God himself is the one who lays out the command to sacrifice, to worship him through sacrifice. But God who weighs out the heart knows why you're doing the sacrificing. Are you doing the sacrificing just out of rote religion, which is certainly what happened in Israel, where they would just go do the sacrifices, kill the animals, because that's what they believed made them okay with God again. But their hearts were far from him. But they would go through the activity. 
And I think that's why the Bible so many times brings up the idea, look, it's not about the sacrifice ultimately. It's about the intention of your heart. It's about righteousness. It's about doing justice, treating people fairly. Again, the perspective of Solomon as a king, as a judge in Israel. He's concerned with making sure that he's being righteous in the way that he's meeting out this justice and that proper righteousness and proper justice, proper leadership within Israel. He says that's more important than all the sacrifices that Israel is doing because you can do the sacrifices without ever engaging your brain or your heart. You can do the sacrifices without ever thinking about what it is you're doing so that religion just becomes a rote activity, just a practice that you do without giving it any kind of consideration. Here, I think we can even extrapolate that out to, let's say, in the modern day, one form of worship to God within the church is giving. Now, you can give without engaging your heart, your brain, and you just give because that's what you do. It's, it's another month. It's another week. It's another, okay, we're going to write that check, and we're going to put it in the box, and that's what we're going to do. But that's why the Bible says God loves cheerful giving. Well, cheerful giving engages your heart and brain. Cheerful giving means you're actually thinking about what you're doing. You're actually engaged in the activity, and you are joyful for the opportunity to give to God. See the difference? The difference is, are you doing it engaged with your heart and mind? Are you doing it in a cheerful way in which you're worshiping God? Or are you just doing it by rote? If you're just doing it by rote, it's not really of any benefit to you. What does that accomplish for you? If you're doing it as worship toward God where you're engaging your heart and brain and you recognize the value of worshiping God with what he has already given you, well, then that really is an act of worship, and God loves that. What's the difference? $50 check here, $50 check there. What's the difference between the two? The difference is the intention of your heart, and God reads the intention of your heart. Jesus talks about that. The intention of the heart. The Pharisees would give money, but before they did it, they would make sure there were people in front of them blowing a trumpet, getting attention. Look at them. Now they're doing their giving. Oh, they're so holy. Jesus says, I tell you, they got their reward because they got seen by men. They're not getting any reward from God for that. Okay, same giving. The same Pharisee putting the same money into the same temple treasury. What's the difference? The difference is the intention of the heart. Are you doing it to be seen of people? Are you doing to show off? Are you trying to establish your own righteousness that other people can see and other people can approve of? Or are you doing it out of genuine worship toward God? And if it's genuine worship toward God, that's why Jesus said, you can do things like praying by yourself in your closet, where nobody sees it. And the God who sees in secret will reward you openly. What's the difference? The difference is the intention of your heart. You get what I'm getting at? There are just so many things in life within the religious atmosphere that we can do wrongly. And the primary wrong way to do it is to not engage your heart and brain, to not think about what you're doing, to not 
recognize that what you're doing is worship toward God, an expression toward God of your own recognition of his sovereign control over your life, his goodness and his grace in giving you the value that you have in your life, and therefore you're thanking him for the things that he is doing for you. That's the proper way to do it. So in the end, again, it's not about the length of the prayer, and it's not about the size of the check, and it's not about anything other than the intention, the intention. And so that's why... So often in the Bible, we can read that God desires righteousness, justice. He desires you to engage your mind, to engage your heart, to do it because he's God and you're worshiping God and you recognize God and you value God. He desires that more than he desires an empty sacrifice. You can just burn another cow and it means nothing. But if you've engaged your heart and mind and then sacrificed to him, well, that means everything. That's God loving a cheerful giver. Okay, so let's do this. Uh, If you would, Steve, turn to Hosea 6.6. If you would, Tom, turn to Micah 6. You're going to read verse 7 and 8. For the rest of us, we're going to go to Matthew 9. Verse 12. We're going to start by having Steve read Hosea 6 6. Then we're going to read Matthew 9 because Matthew 9 is actually Jesus quoting from Hosea 6 6. So first Hosea is going to say it, then Jesus is going to pick it up in the New Testament. He's going to import it into the New Testament because it is an overarching concept. It's true because it's true. What does Hosea 6 6 say? I think this is one of those cases again where the context is important. Because God is speaking in judgment. Verse 5 says, Therefore I will certainly cut you into pieces at the hands of the prophets. I will certainly kill you in fulfillment of my oracles of judgment, for my judgment will come forth like the light of the dawn. And then verse 6, For I delight in faithfulness, not simply in sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging God, not simply in whole burnt offerings. Read that again, just so everybody can comprehend that my last 10 minutes of overly verbalizing that concept is right from the Bible. This is, this is where I get these ideas. Say it again. Verse 5 and 6 or 6? Six? 6. For I delight in faithfulness, not simply in sacrifice. I delight in faithfulness, not simply in sacrifice. You can do simple, non-thinking sacrifice. God doesn't delight in that. He delights in the faithfulness with which you bring that sacrifice. Next. I delight in acknowledging God, not simply in whole burnt offerings. So I delight in acknowledging God, recognizing God, engaging your heart and brain, not just in the whole burnt offerings. You can burn a thousand sheep, and if you do it mindlessly, if you're not thinking about God as you're doing it, if you're not doing it as an act of worship from your heart and from your mind, then you just wasted a thousand sheep. Okay, so now, chapter 9 of the book of Matthew This is where Jesus actually calls Matthew in verse 9 and says, follow me. And then he goes and he eats with tax collectors and sinners. 
Verse 11 says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he, when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. Okay, he's sending them back to their own scripture. He's sending them back to what we just read. Go back and read out of Hosea. Go and read what this means. Learn it. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Because if they comprehended that, if they understood that, then they wouldn't be questioning why Jesus was eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Because Jesus was demonstrating the kind of compassion, the kind of love in reaching down to the people who most needed him. The well people, the whole people, the people who thought they were fine and righteous, the Pharisees, they didn't think they needed him because they didn't think they were sick. So they didn't go looking for a doctor. He says, but sick people need a doctor. That's why I, the doctor, am coming to sick people. How do you not get that? And then he says, if you had known what it means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. If you had understood that, then you would understand that I did not come to call the self-righteous to me. They're not going to come to me. They're too full of themselves. They think they've got their own way figured out. I'm not calling them to myself. I came to call sinners. I came to heal the brokenhearted. I came to patch up the sick, the ones who know they're sick, who know they need a doctor, the sinners who know they need a savior, the people who know they can't do it themselves, the Pharisees so full of themselves and their own pride and ego would sit in judgment on him because they thought they were so righteous and so holy. And he's pointing out, the only reason you're that arrogant is because you don't understand the scripture. How often have we seen that? You don't understand the scripture. If you knew what it meant, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, then you'd understand it, that I did not call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Okay, Tom, so with that introduction, what does Micah 6, 7, and 8 say? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, <coughs> what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your Lord. Okay, so the equation is turned upside down. But he began by saying, what am I going to give for my sin? What can I sacrifice? How many sacrifices? What if I gave my own children? Will that be enough? How do I possibly pay for my own sinfulness? And then he says, but the Lord has told you what to do. The Lord has already told you what righteousness looks like. So then walk that way. The same way that I had Steve read it twice. I'm going to have you read it twice because I think now that everybody has heard it and began to ingest it, they'll get more out of it if you read it again. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Okay, the answer, by the way, is no. 
Thousands of rams. A minute ago I said, you know, you're just wasting sheep. Will the Lord be pleased with endless sacrifice for my sin? The answer is obviously no. Go ahead. With ten thousands of rivers of oil, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. You getting it now? You getting a sense of it? In the end, it all comes down to God, who is the judge of your heart, understands what the motivations are that are driving you in the things that you do. And what he wants from you is righteousness and justice, to walk uprightly in his paths. And he does not want you to begin self-justifying, even if the whole world agrees with you as you self-justify your own ways. He is still going to weigh out your heart. He's still going to weigh out your intention. And no amount of sacrifice, whether that's cattle, whether that's your own child, whether that's rivers of oil, no amount of sacrifice on your part can ultimately make up for your sin, which only God can make up for. Only he can pay that sin debt. Only he can accomplish genuine righteousness so quit justifying yourself if you get nothing else out of tonight i hope you understand that solomon has said a very new testament type thing here he has said just admit it just admit you can't do it just admit you're not righteous just admit quit self-justifying just admit to god that you need righteousness, you need justice, you need it from him, and no amount of sacrificing is going to get that for you. Only the sacrifice of Christ is going to get that for you, and if you think you're fine and you think you're justified, well, that's because you're totally self-righteous and you don't need him. But if you recognize your own sinfulness, your own depravity, your own desperation, then you recognize that you need a savior, well, then you're going to come running most willingly to Christ. That's obviously the far better place to be. So I know I just tied together a couple Old Testament and New Testament concepts, but I believe that is the biblical teaching. Yes, especially since the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. That's kind of it. <laughs> Verse 4. And we're nearly done. We only got through three verses tonight. Well, we're going to get through four verses, but then it's, it's getting to be late. The NASB version of this, does anybody, by the way, have a King James with them? You can. Oh, yes. Well, with your electronics, yes. Because the King James version is the version that I grew up on. And I have oftentimes quoted this verse in order to demonstrate the universal sinfulness of human beings. A proud look, a high look, haughty eyes. And a proud heart. And then what was the King James say next? And the plowing of the wicked. And the plowing of the wicked. Now, every time that I've read it that way, I have explained it as proud men, sinful men, arrogant men, men who are full of their own high looks, looking down their nose on everybody else. That obviously is sinfulness. 
That obviously is self-righteousness and self-justification and thinking that everybody else is not as good as you are. That's an obvious sign. I'm sure that nobody in this room likes hanging around with proud, arrogant people. They become old really quick. So at first it seemed like Solomon was saying, okay, now there's the obvious sin, but then he tacks on, but even the plowing of the wicked, meaning that wicked people, people who are not justified by God, those kind of people, no matter what they do, those people get up every day, what's job one? Find food. And so they're diligent to make sure there's food. And they get out there and they plow their field. And that seems like an innocuous thing. They're just out there plowing, walking around behind a mule or an ox. And they're being diligent to make sure that they have food anyway. But because they are wicked to begin with, because they're wicked in their heart, because God has already deemed them to be among the wicked, even that seemingly innocuous activity like plowing is sin. In other words, everything they do is sin by virtue of the fact that it's being done by a sinner. It can be an act that is exactly like their neighbor. Their neighbor could be a righteous, upright person also plowing their field, and that is not going to be sin for them. But to a wicked person, just plowing is sin. But then the NASB says, haughty eyes and a proud heart. And the lamp of the wicked is sin. Because the Hebrew word can mean plowing, and it can mean lamp. And as a consequence, different translators went with different words to try to emphasize some different aspect of what this verse seems to be saying. Now, Solomon has used this word, this lamp word, a couple of times. And the translators of the NASB have been fairly consistent in every time translating it as lamp. The idea of a lamp then would be what goes on inside them. What light, what exposure they give off, what characteristic is obvious in them. That becomes the demonstration, the show, what they give off. Well, that is the lamp of the wicked. And so it means essentially the same thing, whether you say lamp or plowing. What it means is everything they put off, everything they demonstrate, everything that makes them them is sin. Even the innocuous stuff. Even just walking down the street. Even just showing up for their job. All of it in God's economy is still sinfulness by virtue of the fact that it's a sinful person doing it. And that, by the way, should give you some idea of the width, the breadth, the height, the distance, the depth of what sin is. As far as God is concerned, if you are sinful, then everything about you is sin. Regardless, you don't have some little episodes of righteousness that creep in. You don't have a few good moments that you can point at God and say, well, look, but I, you know, I did that. Instead, everything you do by virtue of your depravity is consistently depravity what you put off what you demonstrate who you are your characteristics how other people perceive you it's all sin even by the way if i can tie this in with the previous verses even if you can self-justify 
Even if you can say, well, I'm not that bad because I'm not as bad as that or that guy or those people or that thing. And even if you can get a whole group of people who think, yeah, you're right, that is justifiable. And yes, that's highly esteemed by us. We're going to agree with you. Nevertheless, it's still sin to God and therefore still detestable in God's sight. See, with God, the matter of righteousness or sin is very, very black and white. There is no gray area in the middle. There are no human beings who are kind of good, kind of bad, and might just tip one way or the other depending on what they decide to do. There's none of that. From the time of the Garden of Eden when God divided all of humankind between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, he laid down the black and white division that all human beings from that point forward are either the seed of the serpent or going to be the seed of the serpent. And you see that kind of division all the way through. God sees every individual as saved before the foundation of the world, chosen and elect before the foundation of the world, or he sees them as remaining in their stony hearts, remaining in their rebellion. And therefore, everything that those rebellious people do All of that remains in the sin category. It never washes them up a little bit. It never cleans them up slightly and gets them a little bit closer to the seed of the woman category. They are just always sinful and everything they do is sinful and everything about them is sinful. And even their plowing is sinful. Even the way that they demonstrate themselves to other people is sinful. Because sin is sin is sin is sin. And God sees sin as completely separate from himself. And that ought to make you shudder. That ought to make you all the more convinced That you shouldn't be justifying yourself and you shouldn't be walking in a way that you think is right in your own eyes. That you ought to recognize God as righteous and holy and the absolute Lord of your life. And therefore, every time that you worship him and every time that you walk through your life, you should see it with your mind and your heart and your understanding of faith and your recognition of him as the one who provided you everything. And so you should constantly be in a state Paul says, of prayerfulness and thankfulness and recognition of God in all things. I kind of think that's a good place to just stop. We'll just leave that there even though we only got five verses. Well, four verses. But when I read these verses in the weeks leading up to tonight... I just couldn't get off them. I just, I kept camping on them. I kept saying, you know, this is really, really important stuff. Some of the stuff that Solomon says in the Proverbs is just good life advice. But every once in a while, he's telling you the stuff that is vital in your relationship with God. And you really need to just absorb it and understand it. So that's why I pressed it tonight. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.